Thank you. Great. Alrighty. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, for sure. My 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 pleasure. <laughs> well, that's what you say now. Listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. So glad you're here today. So happy to have in studio with me live broadcasting. We're back, everybody. <laughs> Raquel Gutierrez here in studio. Raquel, thanks for joining me. Hi, <laughs> T. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's awesome to be here. Uh, well, um, you. I'm so glad to see you. It's so nice. Thanks for, um, I don't know, coming down to the station today. You're in town um, for the Zell Visiting Writers Series. We've got your latest book out with Coffee House Press on the table with us, Brown Neon Essays. This out this year. So, yeah. We'll, yeah, came out in the summer. And you'll be, you'll be giving a reading from this on Thursday. And, mm -hmm, tomorrow. And then... Then also a craft talk on Friday. That's true. What what craft talk <laughs> are you? What's your subject area this time? Uh, let's see. On the craft, we are talking about what it means to belong to a creative commons and talking about that um, it, it, interfacing with... Sorry, just respect my <laughs> microphone. <laughs> so excited <laughs> to be here. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and talking about art and um, what how... Uh, Art helps us understand ourselves um, and ourselves in relation to art and the the communities and artists that um, you know, make that happen. And when you say Creative Commons, mm -hmm. that's that's almost using the um, the Creative Commons the the copyright that is like the uncopyright. Oh, for sure. So, right? Yeah. Is all that the... is that why? Or... No, it's um, it's interesting because um, I mean I understand uh, you know we we miss Adam Adam Schwartz right? Is Adam Schwartz? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just did a, yeah. an unsure face. I know. Um, in terms of just the uh, sort of the the, the dawn of the um, of the internet's. Uh, what it could do to bring people together and how to make information truly, truly free. Um, but I, I bring uh, Creative Commons in the conversation uh, inspired by the essay Brown Commons by Jose Munoz, who wrote um, that that's the first essay in his posthumous uh, release, The Sense of Brown. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about um, in, it being in commons with the uh, sort of the range of artists and publics and communities and um, those of us with uh, political commitments to liberation. Um, that's what I mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's where I take that from. And so Brown Commons, uh, you know, wanting to think about that more at, in relation to um, being artists, being makers, being people who... Um, you know, make make work across media, and um, so it's interesting. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing in the uh, sort of the early uh, history of the internet uh, as a possible inspiration, possibly, um, but it's really just a variation on Jose Munoz's work and thinking. Yeah, and and is that also influencing the um, the title of your your collection of essays, Brown Neon? Yeah, I mean, I am. Um, 
Sorry, I'm taking off. I'm sorry, everybody. I'm taking off my mask. <laughs> uh, I, I'm definitely a child of uh, Jose Munozian uh, philosophy of uh, queer people of color performance and politics. Um, he was also a mentor of mine at NYU way back when. And so Brown Neon, thinking about that in terms of... His, you know, his influence, of course, but also uh, that was the name of a journal that Rafael Esparza and I were thinking of making way back when we had more time but less resources. And now we have more resources and less time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, to, you know, to think about um, Latinx, Chicanx, um creation, right, uh, work across uh, different mediums and trying to find ways for writers and artists to connect across um, our, our, yeah, our, our work and creative landscapes. Yeah, and it seems like from even our brief starting point here, Raquel, that you're talking about across often. It's like across landscapes, across um, genres or um, uh, mediums. It's true. I um, the thing about this book, Brown Neon, my first book of essays, came out June seventh on Coffeehouse Press. Um, woohoo! We'll have plenty of copies at the reading, um, tomorrow at I uh, don't know what the name of the venue is, oh, but I can't Uma, wait to be there. Uma Helmet Stern Auditorium. Ooh, that sounds collegiate. <laughs> Um, but the art museum is it oh just, it's an art museum yeah, Dope. yeah yeah and you'll again go down to a basement level the basement Ooh. that's where all the good stuff is it's true you know? it's uh, <laughs> the, the the plutonian depth yes, exactly. <laughs> and so yeah you know my work this these essays encompass um sort of the, the porousness around uh nonfiction in terms of bringing in travel travel writing uh, memoir, uh, criticism, reportage, um, all of these big, you know, sort of nonfiction, um, key, key terms, keywords, buzz, buzzwords, heavy hitters. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's so interesting because when I started thinking about writing, um, doing essays and, and nonfiction, um, more seriously, I um, was really taken with this idea of just like, what? You're just mining your life for material? And I'm like, well, I have made so many excellent mistakes. I can't wait to write about them. I, I don't know if it's mistakes, but... <laughs> Passionate actual, mistakes. Like, and, and movement. For right. sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think, yeah, this book is definitely a series of um, uh, explorations of mobility. Right. And so I'm a U.S. born child of Mexican Salvadoran immigrants. My parents were economic immigrants who came in the uh, uh, middle of the 20th century. And so my mom wasn't escaping a U U.S. Um, intervention in Central America. My father wasn't escaping a, um, uh, you know, a n narco violence or anything. They were just looking for different economic um, opportunities, and this was, you know, I write about this um, a different a different time, right? A different time that I think um, is it comes down to just technology, right? There wasn't uh, the same sort of uh, uh, surveillance technologies that are kind of commandeering the uh, the border um, these days. Um, they were able to literally just uh, cross an imaginary line. Uh, my dad had been deported a couple times, and his deportation was uh, was mellow, chill, in the sense that um, he'd spend a few days on a fishing boat in Alameda, California, cleaning the cleaning the decks. No, don't make that face, T. No, no, no. It's not. I'm not romanticizing it. <laughs> I, I did immediately. I was out on the water with him. For yeah, a no, he was he was yeah. cleaning he was cleaning up you know yeah. a, a fishing boat while waiting for a bus to send him down yeah. to El Paso to cross into Ciudad Juarez. So Juarez's. having no agency of his own like, for sure. No, and, and yeah, but not but not being but the idea of a of a nice attention center was uh, was never part of the equation back in in the sixties when my dad was just trying to secure uh, you know ga gainful employment and, yeah. and whatnot. We hadn't fathomed the depths of the Trump era for as, sure, which is where the sort of the the background. Uh, landscape partially of brown neon. Definitely, the Trump administration is animating the landscape that I'm uh, 
thinking about exploring uh, uh, narrating here in in brown neon and so oh but you were saying your dad went back and then came back because it was just uh it wasn't the same it wasn't the same it was it was it was distinct and so through and uh it was through the uh reagan administration the uh, uh amnesty sort of blanket amnesty that was um granted to um people who had come to this country prior to 1985 and had established residency and all, all the uh <clears throat> necessary entitled uh necessary documents that entitled them to um to citizenship. Always with documents. Always right? with documents, Always. for sure, for sure. And when you were, because these weren't conversations I don't think you would be having with your, your dad um, or your mom when you were little, you know, like. Well, I was with or, them. I remember being at the, being taken out of school and going to the federal building in Westwood uh, and um, just waiting, waiting around and, and, but feeling like, oh, this is a good thing. People seem like the vibe here is like, oh, like we're all about, we're all about to watch these adults uh, do a collective sigh of relief really soon. Right. And in the sense that like once you knew that the little little flags, the U.S. flags were being uh, passed out, right? Like it handed was, to you. It was going to be. It, it be party time soon. So I, you know, we were there. My sister and I, we were there. And even in these moments when we had to translate for them, for, my, for our parents or translate certain, you know, just like mundane, like utility bills, um, these uh, uh, ways in which kind of, you know, the state sort of uh, identifies itself in your house and your home and your sort of your domestic uh, spaces and um, safe spaces and whatnot. Um, So all of, you know, all of those things, all those threads come into, um, you know, uh, I'm threading them through other threads and and creating this interesting, I I think it's interesting, uh, fabric around um, the border, uh, what it means to, you know, queerness. Um, what it means to make family and um, the Southwest, the politics of California as they pertain, as they butt up against the politics of Texas, um, art making, um, queerness, performance, uh, nightlife. The plush pony. The plush pony, yeah. <laughs> the plush pony bars. Uh, that's the name of a East Los Angeles area uh, lesbian bar that is no more, but has been immortalized in a photographic series by the late Chicana photographer Laura Aguilar, who left this earthly plane um, in 2018, shortly after her uh, retrospective um, hide and seek had been picked up by so many incredible museums um, in Los Angeles, New York, Miami. And before she, her work started getting collected by places like the Getty and the Mo- and MoMA. Yeah. So, and you you wrote the essay about what well, com, um, in eulogy in part. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. You know, okay. on my uh, on my Twitter feed, I um, every time an artist who's really meaningful to me passes, I just can't help but um, post something about what they what they meant to me, and so I posted about Laura's death and um, my friend Lou Cornum. My friend now, at the time, was an editor for the New Inquiry out of New York, and we had, we'd follow each other. And I had a lot of uh, friends um, who had written for the New Inquiry. I was a big fan of um, of the New Inquiry, and Lou asked me if I would consider writing an obituary type thing for uh, for the New Inquiry on Laura's passing, on her work, and on her significance um, to, to 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 queer, um, you know, art, artistic. Uh, communities <clears throat> and so I was prompted by this invitation and I just ended up going into a very sort of a uh, intimate critical um textual pathway as we say in the biz yeah yeah <laughs> and so you know I wanted to and so intimate criticism right is also a really great essay that my friend Ruben Martinez writes about um, what it means for him to write about Richard Rodriguez and other you know California Los Angeles um, connection. So, you know, in the sense that I, I approached this essay as like, uh, um, 
autobiographical lineage, right? In the sense, like, how do I see myself in this work? Because I, well, I do see myself in this work, right? If you've ever, if you're not familiar with the Plush Pony series, it's these incredible portraits that Lauda does of um, butch lesbians, femme lesbians, who are uh, frequent uh, patrons at this bar, the Plush Pony, in an East Los Angeles neighborhood called El Sereno. And so I... As someone who had experienced the bar firsthand and had experienced it, th- experienced it through um, my short-lived, um, <laughs> I, I dare, it's not a career, but like I played l- like bar softball, right? Lesbian bar softball. It was the East Los Angeles Lesbian Bar Softball League. What was the name of your team? Las Traviesas, which um, Traviesas, uh, Travesuras, uh, Travesuras are like um, shenanigans. Right. And so travieso, traviesa, traviesex, traviese. Um, let's see. Well, what's the singular of shenanigans? They who shenanigans? <laughs> Sh- <laughs> I have never heard it without an S. For sure. So, yeah, travesuras are shenanigans and those who partake in shenanigans. So traviesas, in my book, I translated to like the naughties. Oh, right? okay. Las traviesas, okay, yeah. the naughties. And so... Um, and the experience there was also um, exposed me to other lesbian bars in East Los Angeles that it, through softball, I I learned that there was quite the rivalries, right? And rivalries based on, who, of course, who are better ball players, but also who are better lovers or worse lovers, right? In the mm-hmm. sense there's a lot of uh, uh, jilted lovers in, in the mix, right? Oh, in, opposite teams. In, in, other, yeah. in Bar League lesbian softball, <laughs> who would have thunk it? And so um, we ended up in that, uh, you know, in that crossfire of just like, oh, okay, warring, warring lovers, two different bars. Or the, our coach ended up getting kicked out from the sort of the, the, the star bar, right? The the star of the, of the Bar League. Uh, Reds, and um, so she started her own team, financed it, and like good Angelinos, we wore Lakers colors, right? So that's purple and gold. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> purple and gold. And um, so, yeah, so I, in my essay on La Aguilar, I inserted this uh, sort of autobiographical section that narrates my own sort of frequenting of these bars. And um, and basically playing ball on Sunday afternoons with um, with people I um, I imagine were you know subjects of these portrait series. Yeah. So I I definitely feel like I've seen this series, but I, I want to go and seek it out again. for sure, for yeah. sure. And because um, the, the the photo because in the in brown neon yeah. you include a photo from one of her. Like maybe her most famous series, on yeah, the and later, and and the later series after Plush Pony. Plush Pony, in some ways, um, put her on a map. Um, and the landscape series, the nature series. Uh, so the uh, she has some earlier series, a grounded series. In um, I'm, you know, I hope that that's right. I'm I'm so bad at uh, well, at the temporal uh, histories. Well, folks can read about it for sure in because Brown in my Neon. book I did my homework, <laughs> right. but like... in conversation, <laughs> underslept and uh, not not nearly as caffeinated as I'd like to be. Traveling, I'm, yeah. Oh, we only have water. I know it's fine, but they're you know they're series that start out in uh, New Mexico. Mexico, and then and then the more um, noted series later on of of uh, the nature series in or grounded, excuse me, grounded is Joshua Tree, Joshua Tree, California, yeah, in Southern California, which is um, you know one of the many deserts one crosses when you are driving on Interstate Ten going to Tucson, where I live. Or to Marfa, Texas, where I've also written about. On your way to San Antonio, which I've also written about. Austin. Um, so it's interesting, yeah, in the sense that uh, Interstate 10, um, it it is a, it, it, there is a meditation on mobility there, too, in the sense like those who can move through these um, infrastructural uh, wonders, right? Right. Highways that in go a, across in, states. In a vehicle. In a vehicle, right? That says yeah. something about the resources of the person making that trek. So. Yeah, because you have in another one of the essays, it could be difficult terrains where you're riding. Um, well, no, it's not. It's with the 
um, the water, the um, the blue plastic, the migrant stream of blue barrels. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and you're, I mean, it's it's interesting to to see the. Hmm. Let me phrase this a different way. <laughs> Ekphrastic memoir. So this layering of the senses to bring the reader along with you. Is that how you're defining ekphrastic memoir? And is this an example of it, like where, um, that we could talk about where you're in the truck with others and you're going to these, refill these blue barrels and... Well, it's, uh, yeah, so ekphrastic, the ekphrastic memoir for um, those of you out in the uh, ether, ethers who have been English majors who or who have flirted hard with the idea of being an English major, uh, the way in which uh, literary devices sort of come in and out of our sort of uh, language, right, and, and the way in which we read um, the, the canon. Um, ekphrasis is an interesting sort of uh, term that, I don't know, it just... Um, there's so many, so many writers that uh, engage in ekphrasis, and I usually think, with poems. With don't poems, you think? it's so, yeah, true. It's yeah, for sure. And so I definitely wanted to to borrow um, sort of the ekphrastic impulse to um, bring it into the space of memoir. Right? What does it mean to um, interrogate the self through through visual art? And I think that in this essay that you're mentioning mm. to migrants so it's not the same then like what i was thinking because i was thinking it was the um the sensory within the structuring of the sensory details mm. instead of maybe the the essay where we're where we're asked to think oh of these trump's border wall prototypes oh, sure. as conceptual art mm-hmm. that seems like a more clear um way of it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it it, um, it it appears in different points of the book as uh, more pronounced um, specters. And then in other ways, it's just like, oh, there's like a brief gesture, right? In the sense that I think that does sort of uh, animate some of the space in um, the essay about the water barrels, about migrants dreaming about blue barrels, which I'll read a little bit from if you'd like. Would you? I'm now handing the book to Raquel because oh, right. we're sharing a book today. We're everyone. sharing a butch, a book today, <laughs> not a butch. I'm the butch. Um, let's see. We'll go to page seventy-one here. And so, do migrants dream of blue barrels? Twenty seventeen. I live in Tucson. People tell me they love the images they see on my various social media feeds of the mysterious moonscape desert that surrounds the city. Many of the friends, acquaintances, and strangers who follow me on social media live along both coasts, so of course it gives me great pleasure to ignite their awe for the uncontainable beauty of the Sonoran Desert, even if from afar. For me, being in this desert on any given morning or early evening means giving over to the expansive possibilities of the landscape. It has offered new perspectives when I'm stuck on a writing project, stepping out into any number of trails and parks and contemplating the day's ebbs and flows. Whether it's the way the light moves across the shallow valleys of Gates Pass before sunset, or the way the temperature surprisingly drops 10 degrees when your trail takes you into the shadowy parts sitting below Pima Canyon, the infinity of surprise that lives here is hard to deny. But as 115, 120 degrees becomes the new normal for southern Arizona, indicating climate change that may not be reversible in years to come, there is another thing one cannot deny. Any slight carelessness on your part and the desert will kill you. That fact made itself clear on a ride-along outing with Guillermo and Stephen, two volunteers for the regional organization Humane Borders, Fronteras Compasivas. As soon as I climbed into their water replenishment truck, I was told that if we broke down in Arivaca, an hour and 15 minutes south of Tucson, we would be exposed to the same conditions as the Latinx migrants we were trying to help. I stared dead-eyed behind my Ray-Bans at Guillermo. We would never be exposed to the same conditions as migrants making this trek. I shook off any doubt that we would not be okay. All of us engaging in humanitarian work should have it seared into our minds that we are the lucky ones. 
After all, we were traveling with more than 100 gallons of water into the harshest topographies of the Southwest. At worst, in my mind's wandering to worry, we would be sweaty and uncomfortable while changing the imaginary flat tire, but we wouldn't die. I made contact with the privilege I carried into different parts of the valley that surrounded the infamous border town, Arivaca, though I wasn't sure I could ever make peace with it. In this part of the country, whatever you did or wherever, or whoever you were, if you were somebody's anchor baby, a pedantic gadfly, a broke bourgeois bohemian who cared about justice and human rights and had heated conversations about immigration policy with family members during the holidays... If you still wrote diversity statements for scholarship applications or ate nopal fries and drank aged whiskey cocktails with the liberal latte sipping NPR listeners in downtown Tucson, where the adobe facades were restored to look like the old Pueblo. You came and faced these incongruent truths, maxing out credit cards to do the thing you did in the name of justice. If there was anything to do with your privilege, it was to risk it. And it would never be enough. Thanks, Raquel. My pleasure. So I'm glad I'm glad that that was part that you you chose to read, um, because that was a moment where you stared dead eyed um, behind the sunglasses, the Ray Bans. Um, it felt so. I. I felt with you in that moment. It felt like as part of the memoir, I could, I'm glad that that's what you felt. I thought it was interesting that maybe, or at least how you write it, you don't voice it to them. Mm-hmm. You you sit with it and then turn it back on yourself and privilege. Yeah, it, you know, sitting in the back seat in the, that very, it's a very comfortable um, vehicle in the sense that it's outfitted to carry um, these immense barrels of water. And um, in the inside, it's like being inside any other SUV. It's very, it's very comfortable. There's lots of really delicious air conditioning. Um, we had snacks aplenty, so much drinking water for ourselves. Um, and to be inside a vehicle like that while traversing 20 miles of, uh, of, uh, desert hinterland and seeing the, um, uh, the mountain ranges, uh, close up and then suddenly far away, 20 miles that we traveled over the course of nine hours going three, t- no more than 10 miles an hour. So, um, in some ways it was, uh, perfect, like perfect in this revelation of madness right the madness just like oh my goodness i can't believe um these policies have made it that people have to come all the way out here operation uh deterrence for people to make make it across into the u.s that they have to face like some of the most arduous dangerous um physical land and if they survive it, there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. Um, and so thinking about what's the worst that could happen, it's a, sure, it's a hot day, we'll be uncomfortable. Um, we'll eventually, somebody will have to walk 15 feet to find signal and call somebody. So, um, so yeah, so I, I just wanted to, I think, right out, out the gate of that essay, establish that... Um, these types of labors while it's incredible and I'm very you know grateful to um, people in in our uh, desert community who moved to Tucson first and foremost right to engage in this kind of um, in, in this in this uh, really powerful humanitarian work um, but it's always from a space of uh, of certainty yeah so let's take a short break and then we'll come back for sure. um, More with Raquel Gutierrez, her book, Brown Neon, uh, first collection, debut collection of essays. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, so glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers today on the program. Raquel Gutierrez is here in the studio. Um, it's been it's been a great half hour so far, and we've got 30 more minutes with Raquel. I'll read before we go any further. I'll just remind everyone tomorrow, Raquel will be in person at UMA in the Helmut Stern Auditorium for a reading um, at 5 and then the next day, a craft talk. Um, and you can find Google the Zell Visiting Writers Series, and you will find all the information there. Now for the bio, in the back of Brown Neon. Raquel Gutierrez is an arts critic, writer, poet, and educator. Born and raised in Los Angeles, Gutierrez credits the queer and feminist DIY post-punk zine culture of the 1990s, plus Los Angeles County and Getty Paid Arts Internships, for introducing her, them, to the various vibrant art and music scenes and communities throughout Southern California. Gutierrez is a 2021 recipient of the Rabkin Prize in Arts Journalism and a 2017 recipient of the Andy Warhol Foundation Arts Writers Grant. She is, they are, faculty for Oregon State University, Cascades, Low Residency, MFA in Creative Writing. Gutierrez calls Tucson, Arizona, home. Ooh, and um, you have a beautiful dog. You do have a beautiful dog, yes. Yes. <laughs> he's not in my bio, though. Yeah, and uh, he's a, an Alaskan Malamute mix who doesn't belong in the desert. But that's where we got him, so that's where we stay for now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, um, so Raquel, we've talked for, we've been, I've loved how we've been talking about many of the things that I I was thinking about um, after reading Brown Neon, um, the desert, Mm-hmm. the border, yeah. um, driving. Um, <laughs> and I also thought, um, we, we start, we talked about also, um, Laura, uh, Aguilar, Aguilar, mm-hmm. Aguilar. Um, and I wanted to talk with you a bit about big Papa who figures prominently in the early part of Brown neon. And then is a thread, um, which you call upon sometimes when you're out in the desert or or under the sky thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Big Papa for me, um, Big Papa in the book is the late, great lesbian um, chronicler, journalist, organizer, um, and memoirist, Jean Cordova. And Jean Cordova um, is someone who made it really possible for uh, West Coast lesbian communities to um, to to emerge, to surge, and mm. to um, seek uh, well demand, right? Demand more. Um, not just, it's not visibility, but rights, right? In the sense that uh, for Jean, it was about um, bringing liberation into fruition. They, uh, Jean started out, so Jean, you know, was born in Southern California, um, grew up in a large family of 12 and basically started out, they joined the convent, um, as a Carmelite nun and left that to pursue, um, an MSW, a master's of social work at UCLA there. Um, you know, they connected with other, uh, like-minded folks and, um, organized a 1973 West Coast Lesbian Conference and um, just, uh, uh, you know, not just connected the dots, but helped identify the dots. Mm -hmm. So someone who's just, you know, like, yeah, those classic terms, right? The trailblazer. Um, And in Los Angeles, you know, um, they helped establish uh, the city of West Hollywood, which was a, you know, within, within the county of Los Angeles, but its own city. Um, the city f- that, you know, LGBT members or well, gay and lesbian uh, people could come live, work and know that they have certain um, protections mm-hmm. in place. Um, so no she, small thing. Yeah, no small thing. Um, so I, I go I go in into a lot of detail about who Jean was, but also their, her book, When We Were Outlaws, 
2015 um, also is an incredible just like document that um that yeah that narrates just the ways her these um the ways that she you know I don't know I'm I hate to say it but it's like um uh, Forrest Gump, right? Like in the sense, like Forrest Gump is this figure that is oh, because he's everywhere. He's everywhere, so she right? Is so as well. she is similar. They are, yeah. yeah, yeah. She, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, the late, you know, late Jean Cordova, who passed away um, shortly after the book was published. Um, and so Jean had returned to Los Angeles after a stint with her uh, partner Lynn, who also shows up in the book too. They had gone to basically live in the desert, live in um, Southern Baja, California. Uh, uh, Jean had turned 40 and had, you know, then was contemplating the next uh, chapter of her life, right? She had done all of these incredible, uh, had all these incredible accomplishments and was now just sort of um, able to kind of, you know, retract, withdraw into herself and to see what the next... uh, iteration would uh, would be and, and is the desert then a place for that yeah oh yeah that, the desert is a place for that and then learning that uh, shortly after she passes away as i'm contemplating my own move into the desert and to call on Jean as um well for sure uh as my spiritual father but an ancestor now right in the sense that like when we lose people when people pass on uh you know we don't say rest in peace we say our our parent has become an ancestor right Mm so um similarly gene for me was someone who i could call on i can pray to i can um whose name i could invoke out on those uh you know moonless evenings in the desert trying to figure out uh which which way to step and not step into a rattlesnake's nest for example right um so we had a we had a really uh powerful bond and um how that bond uh how that how what that bond looked like in the end days right of her of her life as she knew that her diagnosis was uh was term you know term, terminally diagnosed and um, trying to trying to make every day count, every moment count, and trying to create these occasions for uh, radical conviviality, uh, sexiness, fun, and pleasure. So, um, so, so the first section, "Yorando por tu amor," which is uh, "Crying for Your Love," which is also inspired, taken from. The Rebecca Del Rio cover of Roy Orbison's "Crying," and it's the song that she sings in Mulholland, Mulholland Drive. And it's also I I know that I'm going to write a, an essay one day about what it means to <laughs> be a Latinx artist performing for predominantly white audiences. Because in that, if you don't remember in that scene in that movie, she performs and she makes the two uh, protagonists in the movie just like bawl their eyes out. <laughs> And Rebecca Del Rio's performance is so just like sublime and next level. She dies on stage. Sorry, sorry for oh. no spoiler alert. <laughs> but it's the movie's been out for like over twenty years. You should have seen it by now. And uh, so, um, so for me, but also crying has also been that song is just such a um, how you know anthem of howling grief and desire. So it works both, both, both. both. yeah. yeah. And so when you're, because um, we when you start the the um, brown neon essays, the the structure of it, how it moves, we begin like you said, this is section one, mm-hmm. and um, we we see you uh, first driving, and then with a I think an almost like the the car is breaking down mm-hmm. as you're getting across the border from Arizona back into California, mm-hmm. and that was important too. So we get our first border there, and and the reasons why going from like the red state to the blue state, or so like mm-hmm. these um, are no small things. And um, but a, it seems like a um, a risk to start with this loss. Um, is it because? I don't think it necessarily is, but the chron- chronology mm-hmm. of how the, the time was moving for the collection, or why was this the section one? It's so interesting. I, I, uh, I mean, I interesting in the way that you're framing this question, um, because I'm now I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about it. Uh, <laughs> so I'm like, thank you for prompting me to think about the way in which death, right, prompts us to think about the. Um, it's it, 
it's an end. <laughs> and from that end springs a beginning of sorts. And so what does that beginning look like? And what does that beginning look like? Because there's so many beginnings, right? Um, in this, uh, in this period in the book, we are um, ending the Obama era. We are in the middle of, uh, of an election season. Um, Big Papa and there's a scene where Big Papa and I are watching CNN and this um, just there's no doubt in our minds Hillary. that Hillary Clinton is going to take uh, the the White House. Um, and so as I'm contem- as I'm now living a life where Jean Cordova is no longer a part of my life in, in an embodied form. I have to consider all these things that she thought were going to come to be that would just, you know, all of her life's work, right, would somehow culminate with a woman in, mm. in the in the White House. Um, and to rethink that and to now find ourselves in the, um, you know, in a, in a particularly uh, frightening quandary. Yeah. And that's what, that's why this memoir, this ekphrastic memoir is occupying the, the former administrate that era of time and so that's the the importance of that um her death beginning that time um yeah it's heavy it is yeah i will say like it's there's um it's intense the prose that you write mm-hmm. um the sentences, the long, the, not only what you're writing about, but the way it's written about, it's intense. It's like in a way, like with, with every writer, with every book, when you are learning to read them, like as you're entering the book, um, I just, and I should have even known, cause look, there's signals along the way, how it's structured. Section one, Yorando Port to Amor. And then we get another a, a title for this part chapter on making butch family an intertextual dialogue. Like you're saying, this is going to be something that's um, inter <laughs> interwoven and yeah. and heavy. Like there's like you're setting this this up to be this experience. Yeah. Before Jean died, she gave me an essay that she said, "You you should do something if you want to do something with this." You, I give you know I, I give you my blessing more or less, and uh, and I definitely wanted to do something with it. And I'm like, well, what could I? What how could I bring her words, our our relationship, onto the world? Because for her, it was really important to um, give give language to a lineage that she has had left behind. So so you know, this first section is about. Um, Butches birthing butches, right? So because we also have mention of the mentor that she had, uh, the 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 younger person in in the essay that I also mention and um, that explores sort of this uh, the the philosophical, ontological, and very material um, uh, concerns between and between the this idea of of the disappearing butch lesbian and the um, sort of the now the 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 proliferation of uh, of trans identity and um wanting to sort of tease out that sort of uh dichotomy into uh embodied real world sort of uh um well not like i don't i don't want to say that we were examples but just like our own sort of experience in in uh in with that that also like is uh, in some ways conflated with, you know, Jean's concern of her own mortality, right? Her very real concern. Right. So Right. And these and by writing about this too, Raquel then, you you are you, because you're not only living it and witnessing it and also part of like what's changing. Um by documenting it here, that's um that that makes it different, doesn't it? Because now it's it's I, I don't know. I sound like a broken record sometime. You wouldn't know this, but I often say it becomes like now with this book, it's like an artifact in the world. Um, yeah. Artifacts, right? Yeah. And so we're also rethinking what are, what are our artifacts? 
I mean, being in this incredible radio station situation we find ourselves in, I feel like we are surrounded by artifacts. (laughs) This is analog heaven, everyone. This is Gen X. This is like true uh, Gen X cultural studies um, in action. We're just looking around the the pegboard as it's uh, holding up racks and racks and racks of cables. These this incredible these incredible speakers and monitors. There's a jazz set, a drum set. Well, let's rewind to how how it was for you being a writer, being an artist, being a maker, a musician. What were you like? Like when did you start writing and knowing that this was? yeah making for for you yeah so you know i um my my bio is a little um i don't know i don't know what my bio is doing but all i knew that it was important for a public to understand that i come into uh whatever public discourse that writing a book sort of uh affords you by way of uh, a fanzines zine culture in the 90s and um, for me, the zine, right? So for anyone who needs to teach a genre analysis, right? That's a, it's a great genre to analyze. What is a what is a zine? Who is it for? What is the purpose? What are what's the context? What's the setting? Right? What's the what are the citational practices that happen? Raquel's holding class now, everyone. <laughs> um, and so the zine is it's a self-produced um, textual object, right? And um, the zine, I think, in some ways, we wouldn't have uh, control C and control, is it P? Remember, <laughs> like cutting and pasting, oh, right, right. right? Like we wouldn't have cutting and pasting uh, in our Word document functions if it weren't for the zine, which was an object that was very much contingent on how much cutting and pasting you could do. Right, <laughs> right, right. Yes. So hallelujah for that. Hallelujah for the zine. And so, uh, you know, Ann Arbor, uh, Detroit, if there's ever a zine festival, and there have been zine festivals in Detroit. I remember the last time I was in in Detroit, there was an incredible sort of zine uh, pop-up that happened. There's going to be one next year. And today in Carytown, Mm -hmm. um, Amelia and her students were there Mm -hmm. with some zines. Mm -hmm. And we're hoping to have one for my class in December. For sure. Zines are amazing. Yes. Let's get back to... What did you make? What were your zines like? For sure. And what was it like for the community? Yeah. And is that where you found your voice? For sure. And I think that was... Started oh, poems yeah. and, th- oh, and then yeah. to poems or... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, zine, so you know, I'm uh, I'm in my mid-40s in Los Angeles. I was um, very blessed that my parents settled in Los Angeles where I was able to just see every single kind of uh, show, rock show, DIY to, you know, everything under the sun. And so Riot Girl was a Riot Girl, um movement, you know, spilled into the various sort of spaces that I had been frequenting as a, as a younger person. And in and Riot Girl, as well as other sort of punk space, you know, punk scenes that were coming in from the Bay Area, from Santa Barbara, California, other parts of California, um, mostly California, and then Olympia, and then, of course, D.C. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. And um, Chicago, for sure. And so, but... Um, in these different spaces, there was always a, um, gosh, a, a, a writing culture, a, a, a paper um, component, right? In the sense that there were n- newsprint zines or, you know, the, the different level of production values um, uh, according to uh, whatever the resources at hand. And, and the zine, right, most of us just took uh, eight pages and folded them in half and just would make whatever we wanted. And I remember having just like quite the collection, quite the collection of pen pals from, uh, you know, anything, anywhere from like Maximum Rock and Roll to, you know, when I was 12, I started uh, writing to folks from the B-52s, like fan club, because I loved the B-52s. Cosmic Thing was sort of my... Um, entry point into fan- fandom, and so from there, the epistolary form, right? The the zine form, the mode of expression, the mode of um, no one is really censoring themselves, right? Around right. like the whatever political commitments that people have around, you know, vivisection, animal rights, um, rape culture, self defense. Um, and then, you know, these, uh, these topics get more and more, uh, as we read more books, right. Our, 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 uh, critical insights are a little more sophisticated. And so from there, you know, reading things, um, produced by like Mimi Wen, um, 
uh lakeisha bailey just like you know race in the in the punk space and those uh critiques that uh for for me um super important and also ways for me to find uh my own like mode of expression i had a zine called soda jerk and i think i my zine was very sort of um I was definitely more romantic than I was a realist, you know, and it's not, and I don't say that in the good, I say that with, with cringe. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't have been a good zine if you weren't sitting here saying that right now. For sure. It was compelling. It was interesting, but it was also, um, I think I was just a little too influenced by Ian Svenonius from uh, Nation of Ulysses, just like a lot of like theory, but with no like praxis. No offense. I love the guy, but whatever. (laughs) And so when did you write Soda Jerk? Cause it, uh, high school. High school. Okay. So yeah. 12 letters to the B-52s, starting yeah. <laughs> with that, right? Yes. And um, did they ever respond? or did I, they... I didn't, but I, I they never responded. But I did, um, you know, connect with other uh, fan club members. Yeah. And yeah. and you were writing letters. Yeah, we were writing so letters. Communicating. For sure. For sure. And, and finding communities And getting to know people, yeah. right? And so doing it in a very... Um. Yeah, analog way of just like wait, you know, putting your stamp on the envelope, putting it in the with the messenger dove, <laughs> waiting for the dove to return with its new message and yeah. starting anew. But it, that that seems so important at the time where you're thinking, you know, especially as a kid or as a young person, you're often in the space of your parents or these other authorities. For sure. But you were moving out of that space with words for already. Sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, I was very curious about the world and very curious about people who occupied the world, but also limited by my ability to access these people through the world. And it was, and it's, you know, in the world and being able to do so through the word. Yeah. Right. Why did you pick Soda Jerk as, as the title of your zine? And how many did you have? Uh, I did three and do you, issues. Can you send me one? I think I can. I can. I, I know where they are in my storage space. I actually had uh, Ty, oh gosh, what is Ty's last name? I think it's Smith back in Los Angeles, who, you know, is more of a better archivist than I ever could dream to be. I don't dream of being an archi- archivist. That's so, <laughs> it feels so overwhelming. Um, but she had sent me copies that she had found and that she, or that she had had and made copies because she was just starting to do more archive reproduction and sent it to me. And I was just kind of like, oh my gosh. Oh my gosh, who's this cool kid? In this, in the way that you sort of have to just kind of give your younger, younger self, just like, oh my gosh, a hug, right? Yeah. Like, thank, thank you for being so curious. Um, I love that. <laughs> you know, thank, thank you for just like put, you know, trying to put something out in the world. Um, so. Did people respond to Soda Jerk? Because when yeah, you, people, when you, did you leave it in like cafes or different uh, yeah, bookstores or sure. comic shops? When I would go to shows, I'd, I'd bring shows. like, you know, five, five copies with me, 10 copies with me and either tr- trade them, you know, or like, oh, hey, two bucks, cool, just to cover, you know, copy costs and whatnot. Um, so they, you know, just like, I think, um, they were oblique critiques of, uh, various scenes that I was, uh, that I belonged to oblique reviews of music that I was listening to. Everything was pretty oblique and so personal, right? You were, so the, you personal. were the nexus. You were for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember, uh, gosh, uh, one of the worst things I ever did to my high school best friend, Valentina, who lives in Ann Arbor, uh, who Ooh, also, shout out to Valentina, shout out to Valentina Silva. <laughs> uh, I, I just, destroyed one of her childhood uh, Dr. Seuss books. Uh, to put it in your yeah, zine? Yeah, to illustrate my book. How, were you collaging with it? I sure or were... was. Yeah, I sure was. Um, and uh, and yeah. she knows. Well, she's, for sure. She's yeah. like no, driving we've, home we've, right we've now listening about it. to the radio. Yeah. No, okay. we talked about it. We're, yeah. <laughs> Um, and and uh, but you know you kind of as a as an artist I'm sorry you kind of have to make do with what you have and, um, and and do with what you have. And so from that moment, you were making things, you were communicating, you were publishing for sure, DIY. And I was collecting. And the biggest tantrum I ever threw as a teenager was when my mom threw out all my zines. Oh, at like sixteen or seventeen. Why? Why? Um, Clutter. I, th- I think. Well, that's kind of like the go-to excuse. I don't know. I Somehow I feel like my mom was maybe, you know, she's from El Salvador and just as like ideas get people killed in places like El Salvador. So I think oh. she was just like, didn't like the ideas that, you in know. In the zines. In the zines, yeah. Which Clearly. is all about liberation and feminism and, and all these other things that like could get people sort of targeted. 
Yeah. So in a way of trying to maybe protect you from these ideas. For and... sure. But tragic, right? Isn't it so heartbreaking? Yeah, it is. <laughs> I. Oh, I... yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. But you kept writing. So how oh, did yeah. it, did it go more to song lyrics or poems or, or how did... And when did you know you wanted to go to get an MFA? I think journal, you know, I ended up majoring in journalism. So because, you know, as a as a child of uh, immigrants, you want to be able to... It's practical. Well, it's practical for sure. And you want to appease all the sacrifices your parents did to get you to where you want to go. So you always want to show up with a job, I guess. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> and um and I thought I was going to do music journalism or just like cultural journalism and, and that was that was cool and all but um but then I just uh got into performance art and, and art and visual art and when I graduated from my undergrad college in uh, Southern California I had the option to do a internship at the El Paso Times. I like newspaper internship. Or I got into uh, NYU for performance studies, so no, no brainer, kind of or whatever, yeah. for sure. But I also think about like, man, if had I gone, if had I huh. not even heard of uh, performance studies, I might have been covering all the femicidios in El Paso, like, right. or would have been, you know, as close as I possibly would have in my whole life. So you know, you think about like, well, the obvious, but then you, and then I realized like, oh, well, that's I know what was happening when I was in New York. And this, it feels like the path that you're to, you've chosen and continue to choose is giving you a chance to um, write about what you want. For sure. I mean, you're doing it, Raquel. Yeah. It's not, it's not bad. It's not a bad, it's not a bad life. What are you working on now? Um, good question. I have to, I'm, I, uh, not to put you on the spot. I, yeah, I got to think about what I want to do next in some ways. I'm just, I'm teaching and um, reading and I'm perceiving. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I have some ideas, but I, I'm not ready to put put them, uh, to whisper them out into the world yet. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Maybe, maybe a part two. Then. Maybe a yeah, part two, yeah. for sure. Thanks so much for talking today, Raquel. My absolute pleasure, T. My absolute pleasure. Come back anytime. I, I'd um, love that. Uh, Raquel Gutierrez is in town. She's she. They are in Ann Arbor um, for the Zell Visiting Writers series tomorrow. Um, reading at UMA on Friday, a craft talk in Angel Hall. Um, Google the Zell Visiting Writers series, and you can see Raquel's um, where where they'll be. Um, and you can also um, follow me on Twitter, Twitter, Rockefeller. <laughs> That's such a great band. <laughs> and Instagram, maybe. And well, no, Twitter. That, those Twitter. are for my, my close besties. Oh, OK. <laughs> Sorry about Twitter. <laughs> anyway, you've been listening to Living Writers. Um, thanks to Frank for engineering, um, to Raquel Gutierrez for being here. Her book, their book, Brown Neon Essays. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. So you share what's inside Thinking that all is said in confidence But then you realize
Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report. Thank you for tuning in to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is Colin Flynn. I'm with, here with Vihan today. And Vihan, how are you feeling? Colin, thanks for having me on. Uh, it's, I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And on a beautiful Wednesday here in Ann Arbor, about 75 degrees as I was walking in. I mean, the weather is just fantastic. Really excited to have this kind of day in October. But let's get right into it. A uh, lot going on this week in the sports world. We can start off with Aaron Judge. He got number 62, setting the a new American League record, 62 home runs in a season. Yankees sitting him tonight. Any any thoughts on that? Uh, I do actually have thoughts on this one. I'm from New Jersey originally. I'm a Yankees fan. My dad raised me as a Yankees fan, so obviously this is a big deal for us. I mean, we've all grown up. We've not grown up necessarily. He's only been around for a few years. But my dad and I and, my, and our fellow Yankees fans have followed Judge since he went absolutely crazy in his rookie year. And since then, he's been good. But the injuries have been getting in his way. Maybe he hasn't been to his full potential. So it's just amazing to see him. This is 